Hello and welcome to the Stellar Women Podcast. I'm Blair Cohen, your host, and we're kicking off 2023 with a bang. Today, I'm joined by Kelly Friedman. Kelly, welcome. Hi, Blair. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you. Now, for those of you who don't know Kelly, I am, I'm truly honored to be the one to introduce you. But for those of you who do know Kelly as a thought leader, buckle up to hear from a side of Kelly you may not have heard before. Kelly is senior counsel and a national leader at Borden Laudner Gervais. And Kelly is an industry veteran and is this year's Innovation Award Artificial Intelligence winner. Simply put, Kelly is an all star and a problem solver in every aspect of her life. Now, Kelly, I want to dig into so many things with you, but first things first, tell me about your journey into the legal field and where you are now. Okay, well, going way back. First, you know what? I do want to say, that when you said a side of me that that maybe they haven't seen before, I actually had nightmares last night, and the nightmares involved me being naked in public. So I think <laughs> that's a vulnerability indication that yes. I was going to feel exposed. So let's just go and expose everything, I guess. So I I was um, I grew up in Montreal, Canada. Um, raised there most of my life with, uh, by my mother. I have a brother. I've been estranged from my father pretty much my entire life. I was, um, incredibly studious and focused. And I think when I look back now, it was really that craving for financial stability that, that drove me Mm -hmm. to be that way. So, I didn't, you know, when I look back, I actually think I was incredibly self-absorbed pretty much all through, you know, um, till recently, (laughs) I hope I'm better now in my fifties, but I think I was, I was very self-absorbed in the sense that I thought I couldn't have things distracting me from my goal of having a successful career and a financially stable Mm -hmm. life. Just watching my mother struggle. Um, she was a great mother and a great provider, but single mother with two kids and it wasn't easy. And I was raised in a middle-class neighborhood, but couldn't quite keep up. So I always had jobs. So where, whereas all my friends were um, going to summer camps and away at Christmas, and I didn't have any of that. Um, I worked every summer. I stayed at home waiting for them to call me from Florida, where everybody was partying, to, to say right. hi to me in wintry Montreal. Um, so uh, that's really how I grew up. Wow. I really relate to that. And I think that I want to say, I wish you were one of my tutors that I feel like you'd be an amazing tutor, but, um, I really relate to that. And I think that is a differentiator and a a push that changes your perspective when you're younger and when you're going into your career. But I, for me, like it was really difficult because I also grew up like similar to you. I was in a low, low middle-class family, um, both neither of my parents graduated from college. And for me, it was really difficult to imagine like a corporate career since it wasn't in my family. My mom was a dental assistant. My dad was an, an H- HVAC salesman. Um, so in the legal field, especially like with lawyers, they often have family who are attorneys or have already been in the legal field in some way. Was there any learning curve for you being the first from your family to graduate college and then pursue law school, like that higher education? Yeah. So I I was definitely the first in my family to go to university. Um, I really found at the time, 
didn't have any mentors or people talking about the legal profession mm -hmm. at the beginning. When I look back, I do think it affected me in several ways. I think the most important way is that I had no concept of what the business of law was about. Mm. So I, I had that na naive attitude where I'm going to go to law school, I'm going to study like crazy, I'm going to work so hard, and I'm going to be such a good lawyer that work will just fly in the door. Right. And, and that is not the way uh, the legal industry works. Yes, you have to be a good lawyer, but there are tons of very good lawyers. And it's a lot about networking and building relationships and contacts. So mm -hmm. if you have members of your family who are in the profession, by osmosis even, you kind of learn that that's a part of being a professional. Whereas I had that really naive view that being a professional was head down, doing your work, right. and the funds would come a flowing. <laughs> um, and I think, I think when I said I think I was very self-absorbed, uh, because I was so singularly focused on having a lucrative career. And, and you asked how I ended up in law. Interestingly, I had no desire to be a lawyer in particular. I just wanted a job that would pay me well so that I can live a, a life that wasn't constantly, you know, worried about the bomb like, dropping. Like or survival having mode. Some kind of a, survive. Yeah, that, that's really how it was. So I did my undergraduate degree at McGill in um, a business degree mm -hmm. in uh, McGill Management Program. And when I was coming to the end of uh, that, I was recruited to some management consulting companies in the United States. And I was really tempted because of dollar signs. Mm. But maybe this was naive of me, but I actually decided to go to law school because I thought that was the more stable, less mm -hmm. risk risky route. And I was, again, very, very risk averse, mm -hmm. wanting to make sure I got myself into a career that would give me financial stability, and I could stop focusing on that. The, the interesting thing is now I'm in my 50s, and it really took me until my late 40s to come to that feeling where I feel stable, financially stable enough oh. to look around me and say, where are all these wonderful people who I met throughout my life and, and um, who I didn't build relationships with because I was too busy, too busy working, too busy studying. And then when kids came along, raising kids and working. So right. that's a tall that's order to really, balance it all. Right. I think, um, yeah, looking back, I, I, I would have done some things differently and, and certainly the relationships is a, is a big one. Yeah. But I, it's, it's interesting that you say that because when I've worked with you, it's like relationships are such a fundamental thing that are, that are important to you. Um, but you know, I, I do want to pull back the curtain for our viewers a little bit. Um, I've been working with, with Kelly for my entire career at Relativity, um, I started with user groups with Kelly and I, she was on the steering committee, which is why, you know, the, the, it's, the steering committee is all about relationships and, and creating that community. So what you've, what you've lost in the, the beginning of your career, you're certainly making up for now. Um, but working with Kelly, I've never heard, heard Kelly describe herself as a, a techie, um, cut to relativity fest last year you're winning an award for artificial intelligence. Um, so can you talk me through that journey of how you got from being a lawyer to now being the person that we, that we look to um, who's at the forefront of law and technology? It was 
it was an interesting journey now when I look back. Absolutely still not a techie. Um, it dates me, but I always use the example of I couldn't program the time on my VCR. So <laughs> if, for those of you who are young, a VCR was the machine we used to put in tapes and watch movies. And the, the time would flash if you didn't set it. And right. I had no idea how to even change the time. I couldn't use any. To me, that was too technologically advanced at the time. But what happened to me is I early on in my legal career, I really began to focus on the evidence side of law. Because mm -hmm. another thing that happens when you go to law school, and I don't know if it's different now, I was obviously in law school a very long time ago, but a focus on the law, mm -hmm. right? You don't focus on the facts and the evidence. And when you become a litigator, as I was, you realize the facts are everything. Mm. I mean, you argue, um, if you have a trial, everything's about the facts and you have a very short time to argue the law. Yes, you have to kind of fit your facts into, into legal frameworks, but the facts really mattered. And I realized early on uh, that I had to kind of shift my mindset on that. Mm. And I started to um, really start looking at, well, what's going to make up the evidentiary landscape mm. and realized that things were coming down the pipe. We had just kind of transitioned into using email, which was quite new in those days, but, and all of these things and what was going to happen to the body of evidence, what was it going to be made up of? I actually have kind of an interesting story how I, I came to eDiscovery. I was supposed to work on a trial that was supposed to last three months. And the client was insistent that I didn't book anything else. Like I couldn't double book because it was going ahead no matter what. Wow. You know, clients have that thing. <laughs> and then what happened was, of course, it settled the day before trial. And there I was with a huge gap in my schedule. Which is rare, um, I assume, for which, you. Which is rare. I was, you know, I was, I guess, a, a junior partner at the time. Or no, I was still an associate at the time. Um, but I had to fill it, right? There was pressure on me, like, oh, where's this work going to come from? Mm. And what I did actually, because I had been reading a lot about e-discovery, the kind of the movement was starting in the United States. Um, the Sedona conference had, was just getting up and running in terms of its U.S. working group. That was before they had a, a Canadian working group. And I did a proposal to my leadership to fund me to go to the United States to an e-discovery conference in New York. Wow. And that was my first taste. And from there, I got really interested, got involved in the Sedona conference, ended up chairing the Canadian arm of the Sedona conference. But wow. um, so I came to e-discovery. Part of it is luck because timing, <laughs> I actually... I, I had the time to devote because I had this block of time that my schedule was kind of bare. I knew some of it would fill up. And I thought I really had to use this productively. And I wasn't sure how. Mm -hmm. And um, so I went back to my interest in evidence and started looking at it, started looking at it really closely. And at the time and since, many, many people told me I was wasting my time. Mm you know, maybe I should have spent that time golfing and drinking scotch <laughs> with clients and, and building relationships. But I didn't really know how to do that then. Mm. I knew how to focus my energy on something of interest that I believed was important, 
even mm. though other people didn't. So that's how I came to e-discovery. And once I got involved in e-discovery, you know, really at the beginning, especially for Canada, no one was talking about it then. Everything else followed. My interest in, in security, my interest in privacy. It's so, it's all related, yeah. right? It's, it's all related. And so artificial intelligence um, really was the natural progression. I, I was reading a lot about what is happening with evidence or what the expectations were, both in terms of what was going to make up the evidence mm -hmm. and how we were going to sift through all of the evidence. Right. So AI did both um, and does both, right? It creates masses of um, evidence that we have to deal with and also allows us with the tools we use to use AI to make sense of it all and sift through it. So that's really how it came about. I never learned how to program a VCR. My husband <laughs> fixes my computer for me. But um, intellectually, I was very, I've been very interested in it and um, I've continued to be. So I should mention one thing for all my e-discovery um, folks out there is that I was one of the lucky lawyers. Most lawyers that I know in Canada, especially, they came to their understanding of e-discovery by having a big file that exploded or a big <laughs> mistake in e-discovery. I was really lucky because I started studying up on it before that happened to me, right? I got interested intellectually in the topic. I never had that disaster file. And so um, I was very, very lucky that way. And I think that there's a lot to be said for kind of anticipating where you're profession is going to go and and learning about that instead of waiting for things to happen to you. Yeah, it will <clears throat> as you say this um more and more it's it, it sounds like kind of everything happened for a reason. Like you had that time to dedicate to to AI and and you've been able to really harness that in your career. So how long has AI been on your radar and then how is being involved in this emerging technology like affected your career? I know you said that a lot of people said that you were wasting your time, but obviously where you are now, you, yeah. you can kind of yeah. say, told you so. <laughs> yeah, really, really, I, I do. Um, I do feel that way a bit. Um, so very, very early on, I remember um, I always use my children. I have children 21 and 18, and I kind of use their ages as a benchmark. Was I pregnant when I started getting interested in that? Right. Did I have a baby? Did I have two babies? Like, where did it go? So I think we're going back 20 years when I started doing um, a lot of reading about the topic. Mm -hmm. And um, in a sense, waiting for things to evolve to the point that it would really impact my life. So I think that I'm never, I mean, Technology has done, does so many amazing things and almost on a daily basis, I see new functionality and tools that artificial intelligence does. I don't think any of it shocks me. Mm. I'm pleasantly surprised that I have access to the tools, but I think I, I always expected it to come and just wondered when it would be available to ordinary people who weren't in the data sciences kind of realm. Mm. And I, I feel like, you know, like how do you balance the fear of going all in on like a new technology versus not being innovative or kind of sticking to your guns of like, oh, we did this the old the the old way. This has always worked for us. 
The concept of all in is very interesting because when you say all in, to me, it sounds like you're putting all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. I've never been one to do that. I'm really risk averse yes. and, and, and cautious about that. So I think intellectually, I'm all in on AI because I believe in it. I believe in its power. I believe it's in its importance in my industry, in the legal industry in general. Um, so I'm all in, in that sense, but when a tool comes along and I had this experience with relativity one as well, when a tool comes along, I don't have the initial roadblocks that some people have of being scared of AI or, or skeptical about it. Mm-hmm. wasn't too skeptical about it, but the issue for me and for my firm was uh, return on investment and cost benefit analysis. So I was very, very lucky that my firm wasn't um, wasn't part of that, you know, what they weren't skeptics at the leadership level, but what they were were smart business people and said, let's see right. if you could make this work. If you can prove the business case for this, then we'll go all in. Um, the interesting thing about artificial intelligence, though, is when you actually get down to the brass tacks of working with it, that's when the skepticism creeps in. So leadership was comfortable. But then if you're working with, for example, a particular lawyer who's not used something like continuous active learning for Mm -hmm. the first time, they're very nervous, they're very skeptical, and you have to deal with that. So I had the benefit of having a very open leadership, but then had the reality check of the fact is, when you get down to brass tacks, lawyers are going to be concerned, quite rightly, that things are being done the right way. They, they want to make sure they are, you know, fulfilling their obligations. They're kind so of perfectionists that, in that way, right? Oh, yes, mm-hmm. yes. That's um, a curse that we all bear. <laughs> Um, something I really loved that you said is, um, you were never perfect with AI and you won't be perfect with AI, That's it. which I, so true. I have to say that all the time or phrases like that because, well, it's going to miss a document. Do you think we never miss documents when we <laughs> review them linearly one after another? Especially with think, like lack of sleep and all that. You does. think reviewers don't make coding errors? Like <laughs> w- where have you come from that you have that perfect? So I don't talk to them that way, obviously. Right. It, would, it would be disrespectful. But the truth is you weren't perfect before. You're not going to be perfect with AI. But what AI will do is make you more efficient and more effective because you can you have more time to focus your energies, right? Because it just is a time saver in addition to everything else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like how lawyers are kind of underestimating AI at times, people have underestimated women in tech or, you know, women in general um, since we've gotten into industry. And I know that you have um, a couple stories about being under underestimated. So what was it like as a woman in law and then as a woman in tech for you? So very interesting being a young woman entering the legal profession. I quickly learned there was there was two sides of it. One is absolutely you were minimized and underestimated. But the benefit of that was that you were underestimated, so you can prove them wrong quite easily. So if people have low expectations of you, great, have a low expectation of me and let me blow it out of the water Mm. and show you that I can do better. So um, 
I did experience all of that when I was a young lawyer and tried to focus on the fact that, okay, they're just underestimating me to give me confidence so that I would prove them wrong. I've ha- I have so many examples of being treated poorly or inappropriately when we look back now. Mm-hmm. I had, I was arguing a motion before a very old judge. He was very old at the time. God knows how old he really was. But to me, he was very old at the time. I was very young. And my opponent uh, was a, a man older than me. And he kept interrupting throughout my argument, which is not appropriate. The judge should have done something about it. And then as soon as I, he sat down and then I stood up, he said, Oh, Miss Friedman, that's okay. Sit down. And I said, excuse me, Your Honor, I have I have an argument to make. You know, and that type of thing, like tisk tisk, little girl, like that kind of thing. Hmm. Or or going into a boardroom and everybody shaking hands and then, you know, my hand being taken like as if it was on fire, like ah, I can barely touch your hand, like instead of sh- giving right. me a hard handshake. Hmm. I think the the hardest um, moment for me was I had um, a case that I had taken on a lawyer from Philadelphia had called me. He had a cross-border case and mm-hmm. there was a, a large Ontario component, which is where I practice. And I worked on that case for months. And finally, the motion, it was a major contempt motion was, was coming. And the lawyer from Philadelphia asked me to bring in some gray hair. That's kind of the way he put it, but he was being quite clear that he wanted a man Mm. and someone who was older. Mm. Um, So that was really hard because I was raring to go. I had been working on this for a really long time. And so I had to go to senior lawyer I worked with at the time who was was my mentor and ask him if he would argue it for me, argue the motion for me. And it was, it was a bit humiliating. And the first thing he said to me, are you asking me because you're scared to do it yourself Mm. or you're not confident? I felt so small. I said, absolutely not. Please don't think that of me. The client wants this and I think I need to give it to them because otherwise this is not a battle I should pick because otherwise I argue the motion. If we lose, it's going to be blamed on the fact that I pushed back so hard on bringing in someone older right. who looked a different way. Um, so what I had to do is take three days. I remember it was over over a week and a Friday through the weekend, sit in a boardroom with with my partner, Alan, and teach him the file, Ugh. like teach him everything, write the argument for him teach him what I had been learning over the past few months doing the case. And then I had to sit in the courtroom beside him while he made the arguments and write him notes for him to. Yeah. So those types of things happened. Um, And for the most part, I tried, I let them roll off me Mm -hmm. because like I said, I also had the positive benefit I thought of being underestimated and then people being really surprised at how good I can be. So that, I mean, I, I know it's not like, maybe it's not PC to say, but I love, and I told you so moment and I will, (laughs) I'll stick by that. Um, but Kelly, thank you so much uh, for sharing that with, with me and our community. I know that these experiences are so difficult and so impactful 
Um, and unfortunately it's something that so many of us go through. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and there's definitely a theme of perseverance throughout your life. I love just like how you didn't let anyone underestimating you, you didn't internalize it. You didn't take it down. Rather, it gave you that motivation to keep going and you ended up blazing trails in law, technology, and like for women in tech. So I, I thank you for that. Um, and now, uh, still women listeners, I'm, I'm trying something new in 2023 where I'm going to be asking all of our guests the same question to wrap, wrap us up. So Kelly, kicking us off in 2023, what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Um, I can synthesize it this way. Keep persevering. I think I, I, I don't regret that push that I always had, keep persevering, but take all the time you spending worrying and stressing about your future and put that into building relationships. Mm. So I I try to tell, see, I don't, luckily my children don't seem to have this problem. They, they have really good relationships, but, and I'm very aware of it and think I wish I had been like that they seem to have gotten maybe they got that gene from their dad (laughs) that that I didn't have but I was constantly stressed so constantly worried and um, took me a very long time into my career I think that it's really important to not wait to live your life right Mm -hmm. so don't wait I, I always was waiting to feel financially stable or waiting for my career to get to a place where I could be comfortable Um, to then, oh, well, then I'll have relationships. Mm -hmm. Then I'll, you know, um, not to do that, you know, really not to do that. Like I said, I am so happy in my life now. I think I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because I finally have slowed down and able to say, now I can have build relationships. I regret not having done it sooner, but now that I can pay my bills, I mean, I, just to give you some context, when I was in law school, I met a woman who worked at Campbell's Soup and we became friends and she brought me cases of Campbell's Chunky Soup. And I ate in law school, two meals a day, Campbell's Chunky Chicken Soup. If you put that in front of me now, I will Gag. literally be ill. So my kids, my kids know that story. And even when we were little, we would be, they were younger. We'd be in the grocery store and say, Hey mom, let's get some chunky soup. <laughs> and I would just like zoom right by there. So, um, you know, I did have that kind of experience and, and now that I can pay my bills and I'm not worrying about the future all the time, I, um, I'm going back and working on all those relationships that I think I let slide a little bit too much over the course of my life. Hmm. Well, I, I can say that you are such a relationship builder and that's definitely what one of your strengths, um, even if it wasn't at the beginning of your career. Um, and I cherish the relationship we've built. It's been so amazing to have, you know, you as a, a champion for me. And I love that this is just feels like a very full circle moment. Um, I love it. <laughs> I actually have a story I want to share because one of another thing I found as a young lawyer that I didn't hear enough, and I think things are changing with a really bigger awareness on the importance of mental health, Mm. is failures. Mm. Um, I didn't hear a lot about failures. So when I was a young woman, 
I remember going to um, a talk by a senior woman litigator, and there were very few of them at the time. And she talked about the fact that she had a day nanny and a night nanny. And I sat, I I remember sitting in the audience and thinking, well, I've got a, I can't be a litigator. Like that's not the life I can have. I can't have a day nanny and a night nanny. I want to raise my children. I didn't have a nanny during the day. I can tell you that once I did have children, but didn't live that kind of life. So one of the, uh, and you didn't hear failures, you heard successes. Mm -hmm. So this is so much a failure, but an absolutely humiliating moment that I feel like I want to tell your your listeners. Um, I was in a courtroom, so there there uh, was courtrooms called motions court, and you had um, lawyers waiting all day, let's say, to be heard. Mm. And the judge would call one after, some would take 20 minutes, some would take a half an hour, some might take an hour, so you're waiting for your turn. Mm. So it was a packed courtroom. And I was arguing a motion, and my opponent at the moment was standing up saying, garbage like lying lying about what we talked about like personally about me and I was sitting on the other side of the courtroom and all of a sudden the judge turned to me and said Miss Friedman your facial expressions are distracting me this was a woman judge she shall remain nameless and I was never more humiliated in my life because I do have almost a cartoonish face. I realized <laughs> at the time, like a very, very expressive face. Mm-hmm. That was, a, first of all, I wanted to crawl right under the bench. Uh, it was awful, but I learned my lesson. I learned that one of the most important things for me is to learn how to have a poker face. Mm. And so developing that even though I struggled with it my entire litigation career, being in court, listening to horrendous things people would say, not to roll my eyes or, I mean, I don't know what I did, but I must have been rolling my eyes because I wasn't making noise. <laughs> I, I wanted to I wanted to scream at her, why are you looking at me? I'm at the other end of the courtroom. <laughs> you know? But I think I say that just because if there's young people, you know, in tech or in law listening it happens to everyone. So people that you think are incredibly successful, that they've never had, I mean, I've, I can go on forever Mm -hmm. and I won't, but with those kinds of humiliating experiences that are not the end of the world, but at the moment they feel like the end of the world, but you know, in retrospect, they are very important learning experiences. Uh, So there's another embarrassing story for you. We, we got two nuggets of advice here, so we feel really lucky. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> so welcome. Yeah, Kelly, thanks so much for joining us, um, sharing your story, being vulnerable with us, um, and kicking off the season on such a high note. I'm sorry that you had to have a, a nightmare for, for you to get here, but um, <laughs> it, was, it was worth it because this has just been such an amazing um, conversation. But with that, our first episode of Stellar Woman 2023 season is finished. I can't wait to share what we have in store for the Stellar Roman community this year, Um, but you'll have to stay tuned. And signing off, I'm Claire Cohen. 